Welcome to the Influence and Impact Podcast for Female Leaders. My name's Carla Miller, and I'm a leadership coach who helps female leaders to tackle self-doubt, become brilliant at influencing, and make more impact at work. I've created this podcast to help you to become a more inspiring and impactful leader. And I want to become the leadership BFF you didn't know you were missing until now. In this episode, we're looking at the unique experiences of midlife women in the workplace. And it was inspired by hearing so much about this book, Revolting Women, Why Midlife Women Are Walking Out by Dr. Lucy Ryan. It was all over LinkedIn. She was being interviewed by lots of people. Um, And whilst we've touched on and had episodes on menopause within this podcast, we haven't really delved deep into the experience of midlife women in the workplace. And I know from a recent survey I've done that about half of you that are listening would fit within that category of midlife women. And indeed, we talk about what is that category within this episode. So I was really, really delighted to have Dr. Lucy Ryan join me on the podcast. Now, Lucy is a leadership coach, consultant, author, and passionate advocate for women's professional development. Her doctoral research project explored the phenomenon, I can never say that word, explored the phenomenon of midlife for professional women. There was a long-standing data gap there, which she talks about, and now she works with companies to intentionally unlock the potential of this key talent pool. And we explore some really interesting themes within this episode. So we look at this concept of gendered ageism and how that plays out and how even when we reach the top of organizations, we are still playing men's game, basically. Then we talk about the collision of experiences that happen to women in midlife, both in the workplace, but outside the workplace and within their bodies as well. And just how much is going on there. And then finally, we talk about the revolution, why women are walking out, how they are empowered to do so, and how it's a real waste of talent. So we explore all of that together. And then as we finish up, we talk about how can organizations stop this happening? What can organizations do to create an environment that midlife women are able to and want to stay in. And what I think is really interesting for me that came through very strongly from the book and from my conversation with Lucy is that it's quite nuanced, the midlife experience. It's not the same for all of us and and it's not even the same for any one person throughout it. So there's such a lot going on that sometimes there's just this need to stop, to pause, to recalibrate and reflect on what's next. And then from there, you decide on what do you want from your life and your working life? And and you have a new energy and commitment to getting that. So there's a lot of hope in this episode as well. So if you are not yet a midlife woman, please, please listen to this because it will really help you understand what's going on and maybe understand some of the assumptions that you might be making about women who are older than you. Um, Certainly assumptions I know I have probably made in the past. And if you are a midlife woman, I hopefully you're going to find this empowering and realize that you're not alone. And if you are in any way responsible for diversity, inclusion, HR, people, 
please do listen right to the end because we talk about, well, what can you do to change this? And the need for putting policies in place that support older women so that you don't lose them from the organisation. It is a brilliant episode. And I don't always say that, but it is a brilliant episode. I hope you really enjoy it. In the show notes, you will find the links to get in contact with Dr. Lucy Ryan. But go out and buy the book if you're interested in this topic. The book is a fantastic read and one that's very positive, actually, for midlife women. And then the other thing I wanted to let you know is that this is our last episode before Christmas. We're not going to do one um, in two weeks time in the run up to Christmas. I will be taking some time off at that point. We are going to do an episode right at the start of the year, though, on either the 31st of December or the 1st of January to help you start your year right. So I'm recording this in mid-November, but I am wishing you and your loved ones a wonderful Christmas I hope that whatever you're doing, you're spending it how you want to. Take care of yourselves. Thank you so much for listening this year and being with me on the ups and downs of my journey. But yeah, have a wonderful Christmas break, um, however you're spending that. And I really hope that you will rejoin me in 2024 and let's start that year right together. So welcome to the show, Lucy. It's fantastic to have you here. How's your day going? Oh, it's great. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, you've got such an interesting background. So let's start with that. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to end up writing your book. So, uh, you know, work-wise, I am an leadership coach, trainer, and I uh, was uh, coaching a lot of uh, midlife women and realised that they were making really strange decisions just at the point where they were about to move into positions of power, i.e. just when they were about to step up, they weren't. They were stepping out or they were stepping sideways or they were stepping down. And I really wanted to understand what was going on. So whenever I really want to understand a phenomenon, I, I tend to look at research and there really wasn't any around, Carla there really was so little research in this area. And I knew I wanted to do a PhD. So I'd left school with no qualifications really whatsoever and educated myself from age 40 onwards. And I'd done a master's in positive psychology and I wanted to do a PhD, but I wanted a subject that would engage me enough to last working as I did nearly every weekend for four years. And so I decided to look at the um, experience of female midlife professional women. And for sure, it engaged me for all that time. And that's how I started this whole journey. So I did PhD. And as I say, that took me about four years and the pandemic happened and I wrote a different book during the pandemic. And then this one just wouldn't let me go. So I came back to it kind of uh, last year and wrote it relatively swiftly, actually, once I'd made the decision and sorted it out. Uh, And that, you know, it came out a couple of months ago. And it's been really popular. I keep seeing it everywhere. Like it's mentioned everywhere. I see (laughs) you being interviewed. I've got author envy. (laughs) Oh, oh, thank you so much. I've had author envy for so long. It's um, it's very nice to experience publicity. 
Um, and it has your it has been thrilling. It's been picked up by every broadsheet. It's been picked up, you know, in the US, Canada, Japan. So for sure, this is a topic that resonates. And it doesn't surprise me at all that there hadn't been any research on it because it's being uncovered more and more now, isn't it? That research is so much based on men, even like medical research. They're only really now just starting to research the female brain, aren't they? And work out it's different from the male brain and how menopause impacts it. So, yeah, I mean, we really haven't dug in. You're right. We really haven't dug in to female research. And I don't think we've realised um just how little of the research was based on either the female body or the female brain. Uh, I think people took it for granted that we'd looked at all genders in our research. And it probably wasn't till Caroline Criado Perez kind of blew the whistle with how much research was just done on men. Yeah, it's it's shocking. Um, and when you say midlife, how are you defining midlife what what sort of age range are you looking at there yeah I'm defining it um well it, certainly when I was researching it I was defining it strictly between 45 and 62 as as I edge towards 60 now I'm kind of making midlife 45 to 65 <laughs> um so probably in five years time when I'm 65 I'll be calling midlife 70 but strictly speaking it's 45 to 62 is what most scientists will agree on. Okay, great. Well, we'll be living longer by then, so you'll be right. I think all you're exactly. doing is <laughs> you longer, aren't you? I like I the logic. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what I'm expecting. <laughs> I'm now 48, um, and I'm not sure at what point I started accepting that midlife label rather than rejecting it. I know certainly in my early 40s, I was like, well, that's not talking to me, even though technically I'm sure it was. Um, but it's only really quite recently, the last couple of years. I think as I'm edging towards 50, so I'll be 50 in um, about 14 months, I'm psyching myself up for that and thinking how I want to turn 50 <laughs> like as fit and healthy as possible. That It's really got me thinking about kind of long-term future and mortality and that side of things. And then it's really felt like that label is something where I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally associate with that now. But there seems to be a tipping point where we sort of yeah. reject it for a little while because it doesn't feel like us. It feels like our mums. You're so right. And it was probably the first revolt in the women that I interviewed for my, my PhD was how much they rejected the term either older women, midlife, middle age. I, I felt very lost as to how to term this age group. Because for sure, no one wanted a term that made them feel old or categorise them. But but at some point, you have to, if you're going to um, research a cohort of women, you, you have to find a category term. Exactly. And we are all getting older, whether we like it or not. So the title, Revolting Women, yes. what inspired that? What made you go for that? Well, it was... Part of uh, the research I was doing was looking at the two sides of older women. For centuries in history, older women have been considered an object of disgust, which is why they have had the term hags, crones, witches, frumps, 
old bints, all of those terms are centuries old. And um, I was really interested in the whole historical aspect of the older woman. I still am. I'm really fascinated by that. And then there was the other side of it. It's such a great word, isn't it? There's the other side of revolt, which is what I was seeing in these professional midlife women, which is they were all at some point of revolt, either against the status quo of the organisation or against a life that had been prescribed for them or against what career success meant in an organisation. So there were all sorts of revolts going on um, and often against their marriages. So there was all sorts of different forms of revolt going on. Sometimes it was just a revolt to, to just stop and just to pause before they changed. So it has all these beautiful meanings to it in terms of rethinking, revolution. Um, but make no mistake, historically, the older woman has not been treated well in historical terms. And in the book, you talk about the two dominant narratives that exist at the moment, the decline and the freedom narratives and how they place responsibility for this situation on women's shoulders. Can you talk to that a little bit so exactly as you say, that the predominant narrative about the, the middle-aged woman is one of decline. So if we take, certainly let's take our physical aspect, and, and you'll see it in today's papers, you know, the middle-aged woman is seen to sag and droop from her head to her toe. Um, and I remember going to a talk at the Cheltenham Literature Festival and all they talked about, about the middle-aged woman, was how her body was just falling apart from head to toe. So there's that sense of decline of middle age. It's sad, it's saggy, it's droopy. We also talk about mental decline and the middle-aged woman. So we talk about brain fog. Um, we talk about forgetting everything. And we talk about emotional decline too. The middle-aged woman has historically been seen as sadder. Um, so there's a, a brilliant book called, you know, Mad, Sad and Bad, which is the whole history of the middle-aged woman. So the decline narrative is very strong, and it still is, Carla. You know, you read most things in papers about the older woman, and we are positioned as um, a, a human being in decline. The freedom narrative is still quite young. You know, it's probably only a decade old. And that's where people started to write about the middle-aged woman as footloose and fancy free. It was a big academic piece called that footloose and fancy free. And that's the sense that the middle-aged woman has, has shed her children, shed her partner and is kind of off on holiday for the rest of her life. Um, and it's kind of quite, a, a, you know, a, a lustful thing to, to a very desirable um, thing to have. But it's absolutely not true. Neither of those narratives are the reality, is what mm -hmm. I found. Yeah. 
I find that there's a lot of assumptions about women and their child caring responsibilities. Like, so, but they seem to forget that lots of women had children later. So I'm nearly 49 and I have a five year old. So it's going to be a long yeah. time before I shed him and um, start doing whatever I feel like doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, we keep talking about empty nesters. And of course, that's becoming less and less of a reality. Even when our children leave home for college or for jobs, um, often we still care for their grandchildren or they're coming home or what's flying massively under the radar is the mental health challenges of our older children. Um, And most of my friends have some childcare responsibilities Um, whether that's for their older children, whether that's for their teenagers, whether that's for their grandchildren. And that's before we've even started talking about parental care. And in the book, you've you've put it into three core parts. Could you give us a bit of an overview of how you've structured the book and, and what each of those parts is trying to communicate? And then we'll dive a bit deeper into some of them after that. Okay, so the the subhead of the book is why midlife women are walking out. And so the book is structured in terms of what's the problem here. So firstly, is there even a problem? We see lots of middle-aged women on our TV screens now. And then why are they walking out? And the three reasons that they're walking out um, being uh, power and gendered ageism. So you, you know, still the glass ceiling pretty much firmly in place and, uh, you know, f- screwed on the older you get and the closer you get to positions of power. We get the midlife collision, which is a term that I wrote and has been taken up by a lot of both broadsheets, magazines, podcasts, because it is so true of what we experience at midlife women, this collision of events. And then thirdly, they leave for a revolt because they can, they want to, and they want to forge um, a different life at this chapter of their lives. So those three reasons. Fantastic. So let's dive into that first one, this this idea of the maintenance of power. And in the book, you refer to the missing 919 <laughs> women. Who are these women? What does that mean? Um, what it means is if you take any data of organisations Um, Women are still um, vastly lacking at the top of our organisations. Now, we are fudging the data at the moment because we have got something like 40% of um, non-executive directors on our boards of our companies. We are hailing this as a success of gender equality. Now, it is a success, of course, a success. We've got women on our boards of our companies. What we haven't got, though, is full-time employed female executives. And that data, that figure, has stayed at about 14% for nine years. Um, And that's the missing 919 women, which is, if you take the data across our organisations, we are still missing so many women at the top. And the reason for that is there is a, a triple whammy of ageism going on. They're not young, they're not male, and they commonly either don't or won't work full time or can't actually work full time. So they've got there's gendered ageism going on. 
But there's also this problem of what I call full time foolishness, wanting our leaders to work full time. And there's a lot to dive into in both of those. And I think there will be women <laughs> listening to this who will be glad to hear that called out because it's still yes. quite unspoken, isn't it? That gendered ageism. It's very unspoken. It's very unspoken. And, and it's a bit like we now have a term for it. Um, so we can call it gendered ageism, but no one really knows what it means. And it is very quiet. You know, I call it, it's a bit like the silent revolution. All these women are exiting and no one's really causing an outcry about it. They're just filling the gaps, um, either, you know, with more men or sometimes fewer women. Um, and we it keeps happening. So when we're not calling it out. And so for those who are listening to this who haven't yet reached midlife and they're like, well, what does that look like? They've probably still got their blinkers on because they haven't experienced it. What does that look like on a day-to-day basis, gendered ageism? Well, I reckon that most women who are listening to this, Carla, will understand sexism in the workplace, Mm. which will take many forms. It'll be physical, it'll be mental, it'll be emotional, it'll take many forms. And I reckon every woman will understand that in some way or another. Gendered ageism is where you still have that, plus you have ageism on top. So um, I can give you some examples. So women I interviewed, um, you take someone like Rhea who said, I never say I'm tired. All the young people say I'm they're tired, but I never say I'm tired because every time I say I'm tired, everyone thinks that I'm just too old and that I can't do something. We also have it in terms of uh, our policies. So there are plenty of maternity policies. There are plenty of policies for younger women. There are none really for older women other than a menopause policy. So if you've got to go and look after your parents, there are very few elder care policies. If you think about training, There are graduate training schemes, apprentice training schemes. There are plenty for our younger women. There are virtually no training schemes for older women. It's like, well, you could do a retirement one or or you could do a menopause uh, scheme or join, become a menopause champion. But we don't talk about enabling our middle-aged women to be creative, energetic and ambitious that's seen as a preserve of the young so you know your listeners who are younger listening it's literally the sexism they might have experienced doubled down with ageism but I don't want to worry them you know it'll all be over by the time they get to my age (laughs) well there's no perfect age to be a woman is there like when you're young you're not taken seriously in leadership roles and then oh you might have a baby and you're not really committed and then when you're heading towards menopause you're not going to be able to perform at the same level there is exactly right yeah there is no great age we did think that the older woman would have the great advantage because no longer would her reproductive body be held against her so all women have their reproductive bodies held against them whether or not they have children They have the potential to have a child. So what we thought with a middle-aged woman, or certainly what I thought looking into the research, was 
um, no longer reproductive, so therefore unbelievably productive and welcomed. And of course, the reverse was true because suddenly we were menopausal and difficult. And only last week I was at a women in business lunch and someone was telling me that one of the older women in her team had got this nickname of Menopause Mary. And every time she was the leader of the whole team and every time she she, uh, had a difficult conversation or was asking people to step up or was being demanding, um, behind her back people were going, there goes Menopause Mary. And I thought... Oh my God, we cannot win. We cannot win. That is truly, truly terrible. That's the perfect example of it. And yet it is the fastest growing demographic in the workplace. It's the fastest departing. But isn't it also now one of the most substantial demographics in the workplace? It certainly is. It is. And with the ageing demographics, it's only going to get bigger. But of course, in the pandemic, more women came back into the workplace and have found it hard. Sorry, came back into the home and I found it hard to get back into the workplace. But it is the largest um, single demographic within our workplace and deserves to be taken seriously. We need more power. Um, and one of the things that <laughs> in the book is, is where the power sits at the moment. And there was a wonderful quote um, from Kristen, who's a 53-year-old ex-human resources director, um, that I wanted to read out because she just nailed it in a way that I really wish I had nailed it long ago so she said one of the phrases that always drives me nuts is when men talk about equality they say yes we need to level the playing field but what they're really talking about is football that is we've got to make sure you girls can play football but I don't want to play football it's not my game it's never going to play to my strengths and for me that's the fundamental bit that we're missing this is the male paradigm that exists when we talk about diversity What we're really trying to do in organisations is to squeeze everyone into a square box. And you go, yes, but I'm round. So essentially, what we're being asked to do is alter our shape to fit into that box. And that's what equality and diversity means to me as an older woman. It's trying to homogenise everyone to still fit the male system. Our processes have all been constructed by predominantly middle class white men. And therefore, when you try and look at it from a different perspective, it doesn't work. So I think for me, an inclusive paradigm would be recognising that not everyone wants to play football and not everyone wants to fit in a square box. It's really powerful, I think. It's great, isn't it? It's great. Kristen was just so uh, articulate about uh, what what the problem was that was facing her. Um, And of course, she left a very senior role and went to do a PhD. Um, because she just couldn't fit anymore. And it's so frustrating because we're finally getting a bit more of a pipeline of women coming up. There's still that broken rung at the bottom, but we that there is such a lot of talent. And I think the thinking had always been, well, at some point they're going to get to the top and organisations are going to change. And then that mm-hmm. glass ceiling, like you say, is still there for exactly the reasons that you've outlined in the book. And it's like, well, when, when does the revolution come? How do we make this happen? <laughs> Yeah, uh, precisely the question, obviously, I've been asking, when does the revolution come? And I've had so many uh, messages going, please start the revolution. It's like, I'm trying. I've written the book. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, right, I'm trying to work out what's next. Now, it's also not... So that is the power structure. Exactly. And it's also not as simple as that either, is it? Because in, in part two of the book, you talk about the collision 
Why have you described it like that? I didn't know another word to describe it. And it was the most meaningful, probably parts of the interview. Um, I expected, Carla, the conversations about power structure, about gendered ageism. I hadn't expected that to be quite as visceral as it was. I hadn't expected the language that women were called throwbacks, fuddy-duddies, old biddies. The language women were called was so vivid and awful. But I had expected a degree of sexism and ageism. What I hadn't anticipated was the degree of what I called the collision. And that is, is that it seems that at midlife, um, uh, middle-aged women face a collision of events. So think menopause mixed with um, parental care, mixed with often childcare, as you've described, or our older children's mental health challenges, often mixed with redundancy, financial pressures, divorce. So they have physical, emotional, mental challenges, but it all comes at once. So when people say that one in 10 women leave the workforce because of the menopause, I would still say yes, but usually menopause is just one of the triggers. It's not the reason women are leaving, usually. Um, Usually they're at the centre of a storm and they don't know what else to do other than leave and leave quietly because they're busy coping. Um, And everyone lets them go. And the worst thing about it all is that this is temporary. All the issues that we face at midlife are temporary. And once we've dealt with it all, caught our breath, we're ready to step back in, we can't get back in. So I feel very strongly about it. I I really want this midlife collision to be recognised because we've got to take a longer term look at midlife. We cannot go, oh, well, you can't take time off because your parents have got dementia um, or your kid's in trouble. We've got to go, of course you can. We cope with you taking time off for maternity. We, we've got to cope with time off at this stage as well because you're so valuable. Mm. It's also frustrating because the gender bias is playing in there, isn't it? In terms of caregiving, for example, the expectation is much greater upon women to care yes. for their elderly parents um, and other relatives as well. If your parents have already passed away, um, yeah, there's so much of that happening and you don't, you don't see it so much on the men. It comes back to that like equality in the home piece, doesn't it? Yeah, it's 91% of women pick up the caring challenge. And, you know, in my research, the challenges were alarming. I'll just read these out to you. Of the women I researched, half of them had one or more parent with a form of dementia for whom they were actively involved with caring. One in 10 were caring for their seriously ill husband or a sibling. One in five were helping their older children uh, cope with a mental illness. Um, One respondent was actively caring for her mum her aunt and her mother-in-law at the same time. And another was juggling seven grandchildren and a mother with locked-in syndrome. And, you know, the impact was extraordinary. A third were were taking a break. And many of those will never return to the workplace. 
And the impact on your nervous system is huge at that point. I mean, I'm now just realizing that just caring for a child with additional needs, like my nervous system just never gets to come off high alert. I'm starting to. Yeah, I really, I really understand that, you know, and I'm sorry you're going through it. I really understand it. Um, And I, you know, my, my 95 year old mum is downstairs. I'm caring for her this week. And so that means I'm on, I'm off. But I certainly couldn't do a full-time job and be around for her that I want to be in a way that I want to be. And this is the thing is um, I've got friends who are, who are carers and, and it's a privilege as well as a burden, yes. isn't it? Like to, to spend that time, to be able to give back that love that they gave to you as you grew up. Um, it's, a, it's a complex thing. I'm so glad you said it. I'm so glad you said it because every time we talk about parental care, Carla, we talk about the burden. And that word is constantly used. And, you know, my mum is always saying, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to be a burden. And uh, practically every woman I spoke to said, I want to do this. I want to be there for my parents. And although it's tricky, because when we have younger children, we're so used to sharing, aren't we, the care? Certainly, I I was very used to it. You know, neighbours, friends, you know, quid pro quos going on the whole time. You can't do that with your older parents. You look after them. And there isn't anyone else particularly there to help you. So it's both lonely, but it's also a privilege. And so often all women are asking for. I know in I one of the women I interviewed, all she needed was five weeks. Both her parents died within two weeks of each other. And she just wanted five weeks off. Um, and she wasn't given it. And and uh, the book is littered with examples, particularly of women stepping out to look after their parents. Mm. And so it seems like that's where that revolution starts, isn't it? The the move away from full-time to part-time for those that, that want to keep going, but being able to create that pause. And what I really found interesting within the book is the nuances that you talk about in those three phases of midlife. So in my head, it was kind of all one phase, but you talked about... The, the stop, the pause, the change. Can you talk us through those phases? Yeah, of course. Yeah. It, it's because it was articulated so many times throughout um, the interviews in that because of this collision, there is a moment where we have to stop. You know, and it often is just to have to. Too much going on. And... And so we, we call a halt to everything. And, and very often, the only thing we can call a halt to is work. Mm. Then there is a pause phase where we breathe. We look around. We catch our breath. You know, you just said that caring for your son, you, you kind of have a, a constant high adrenaline. What's going on? How do I care for him? How do I look out for him? Is he okay? So you have... When you stop, you have a high adrenaline, high cortisol going on. You then have to pause and look around. What's going on? What do I want this next phase of my life to be? And then comes the revolution where we change. And that change might be stepping up, stepping back in, which is what most of the women I interviewed wanted to do, bizarrely. They didn't want to retire. Their motivation was completely different. They wanted to change but they wanted ambition 
uh, written in in their ways, so they fed all areas of their life. So it is a sense of to stop, to pause, to change. R I C is the three phases of midlife. I love it, and this idea that that we can start to come into our own after midlife. Um, and I, I've heard mm. others say to me before, there is a point you reach where you stop caring so much about what other people think. I have not yet reached that mm. point. And I'm like, that sounds really, <laughs> really empowering. I yeah. have reached a point if I yeah. want to do things on my own terms. And it sounds like, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like, yes, we want to do things, but actually we want to do things on our terms now. We don't want it to yeah. be all work or all caring. Um, and I, you talked about the female sparkle as well yeah tell us a bit about that what do we have to look forward to <laughs> oh we have loads to look forward to um the, the the sparkle of female genius came from a um philosopher called julia kristeva who i studied a lot for uh you, you know my phd and she had the description of women as a sparkle of female genius and it was like Yes, that's exactly how I would describe older women. So this is a sense of revolt, which is I can change. I'll do it on my terms if you don't want to do it with me. And what I see in midlife women is this enormous resilience, energy, um, a beautiful sparkle and all sorts of wisdom that gives them this sparkle of female genius and I love it. You know, you look at any midlife woman and they've got so much knowledge and creativity and desire. It's uh, just so interesting. Um, where, it, where it's often difficult is uh, not every woman, uh, older woman, has choice or financial choice. Mm. So those who have financial choice have much more opportunity to live that phase of their life in exactly the way they want to. Some women, though, don't have that financial choice and they're forced either to work um, full time on a corporate's terms and to fit everything else in. Or I find more commonly they leave and they're doing like five portfolio jobs. It's interesting. And so I hope that the women who have listened to this who aren't yet at midlife have had their eyes open a little bit about what's going on. And also that there are women probably wanting to come back into the workplace with a huge amount of talent and drive and ambition that could be huge assets for organisations. Mm-hmm. I feel like those experiencing with some of this, whether it's the start or whether they've been experiencing it for a while, will hopefully feel a bit more understood but I love that there's this message of hope that it's not it's not a decline forever no no you might you might experience um uh, you might experience the sense of decline in terms of uh, loss is the best way I can describe it so you'll find that midlife women experience considerable loss And that's in many ways, often the loss of our children from the family home, loss of our parents, loss of our fertility, um, uh, sometimes loss of our jobs, uh, friends. So we experience considerable loss. But, but, but that loss gives us what's called a stealth motivator, which it gives us this huge sense of right. I'll live the next chapter in a way 
that is really fulfilling, really meaningful. And we galvanize ourselves to live this next chapter in a way that is purposeful. I love that. That is inspiring. Now, I also know that listening to this podcast are a lot of people who work in people teams, HR teams, that side of things. What what would you really, I think this will have been really enlightening for them, but what would you love them to either understand or what would you love them to start doing to make workplaces a place where it's not a talent drain for midlife women, but an in, instead somewhere where midlife women can stay or take a pause and come back and really make the impact yeah. that they have the potential to make? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I've got several ideas. Um, I would love any of the listeners to this who have responsibility for um, diversity, equity, inclusion, to firstly add uh, gendered ageism to their diversity agenda. You will commonly see on any diversity agenda all sorts of intersections, but you rarely see age. So I firstly like age added to that diversity agenda. Once you've done that, you need to find your data, track your data, find out where are the broken rungs. We, we kind of know where the broken rungs are, except we're not tracking those broken rungs further up the ladder. So where are those broken rungs and where are the leaks out of your succession planning? So just do some tracking, do some data, do some searching. Um, secondly, do a listening exercise. Find out what it's like to be an older woman in your organisation. You'll probably find that many of the HR women listening are in uh, that cohort and know exactly what it's like to be a midlife woman in their organisation. So listen to their own experience and build that community. Do a listening exercise and build that community. Um, Thirdly, I would love every organisation to conduct what I call midlife check-ins. You know, what we're doing is exiting interviews. So we are finding out the problem uh, when the horse has bolted. Mm. And I think if we actually did proper midlife check-ins, male and female, and found out what is going on in that person's life properly, then we would resolve quite a lot of the issues before they happen. And then I think there's an exercise in ending this full-time foolishness for senior leadership roles. I don't know what it is that every organisation thinks that leadership, senior leadership, has to be five days a week, 24-7. So there's four things for starters. Is Is that a good enough starter? That's a brilliant starter. Thank you. And I was reading something on LinkedIn the other day saying co-leading is a feminist principle. Um, and the idea that we don't need just one person in charge of everything. In fact, co-leading is a great idea. And job shares, I think traditionally, we've always thought of job shares as um, women coming back, having had children and not wanting to come back full time. But it, it's not just it's men as well. Um, and it's people of different ages. Like, yeah. I completely agree that the part-time working, it should work for everybody. It's not even just something we should just do for women. Agree. I'm starting to see some amazing job shares, but hardly any. Mm-hmm. And yet they're awesome. Two people for the price of one. And I'm starting to see people, you know, go for job interviews as as one entity. 
you know, you want me for this job, but we come as a job share. Um, how incredible is that? So co-leading, I talk about co-leading in the book just because someone had started to talk about co-headship and was studying co-headship. Um, you know, the idea that we should be isolated in leading our organisations is crazy. So job shares right from the top would be incredible. And so for those listening, we have actually interviewed the job share pair before um, about job shares and how to set them up and how to support each other when you're running them. So do go and check out that episode. So amazing. It has been a real delight, Lucy, talking to you. I absolutely love the book. I think it needs to be on everybody's reading list. I am right behind you when you start this revolution. Let me know what I can do. (laughs) We're all here now. Thank you, Carla. Behind you on this revolution um, because there is so much talent and ability out there that is not being recognized and valued and that doesn't serve anyone in organizations so thank you for writing the book and thanks for coming on and sharing your insights with us today I really appreciate it it's been my complete pleasure thank you for having me Carla thanks for listening to today's episode if you're not already subscribing please do so so that you don't miss any future episodes And if you want to go deeper on the topics that we talk about here on the podcast, on confidence, self-doubt, imposter feelings, increasing your influence, being better at leading, then there are a few avenues that you can take. The simplest is to get yourself a copy of my book, Closing the Influence Gap. If you love this podcast, it is crazy if you don't already own that book because It's got so much of the content from the podcast in a really accessible way and so many practical tools and strategies. It's basically a practical guide for women leaders who want to be heard in the workplace. You can grab a copy in any bookstore. Now, we also run a couple of open programs. We run them once or twice a year each. There is Be Bolder, our four-week confidence and assertiveness course, which is suitable for women at any level. And then there's also Influence and Impact, which is our Women's Leadership Development Program. That's a three-month small group cohort working closely with me. And then my team and I also work in-house in organisations. Sometimes that's working with women leaders, whether that's running a whole women's leadership program or running one of our really popular masterclasses for women leaders. Sometimes it's working with early to mid-career women where we're often sharing our Be Bolder confidence and assertiveness program. We also offer gender neutral versions of that, which are becoming increasingly popular because women aren't the only people experiencing confidence challenges. And then finally, we do work with allyship and supporting men to help bring about gender equity in the workplace as well. So if you are heading up a team or a department within your organization, you're responsible for the people function or L&D and would like to have a chat about how we can work together, I would absolutely love that. And you can go to my website and book a call or if it's simpler, head on over to LinkedIn. Let's connect and let's chat there. I would love to take working with you to the next level and help you to become an organization that retains and develops and supports the talented women that work for you. 